Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Cancer, Alzheimer's, heart disease, diabetes, infertility. While these prevalent and dreaded diseases are caused by multiple factors, my guest says they also all share a common thread, a ubiquitous and too little understood condition called insulin resistance. His name is Dr. Benjamin Bickman. He's a professor of biology and physiology, an expert in obesity and metabolic disorders, and the author of Why We Get Sick, The Hidden Epidemic at the Root of Most Chronic Disease and How to Fight It. Ben begins our conversation by explaining insulin's role in the body, how it goes awry when it comes to type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and how giving type 2 diabetics insulin to treat their disease actually makes them, in Ben's words, fatter and sicker and kills them faster. We then turn to the fact that even if you don't have diabetes, you very likely still have insulin resistance. Now, something helpful to keep in mind during this conversation is that insulin resistance is bad and insulin sensitivity is good. We also talk about the condition's three primary causes. Ben then unpacks how insulin resistance correlates with cancer, obesity, cardiovascular disease, reproductive health problems, including the fact that erectile dysfunction isn't a function of low testosterone, but insulin resistance. We then talk about the role of insulin resistance and someone's susceptibility to COVID-19. We enter conversation with the four pillars of reversing insulin resistance, including the role of diet and physical activity, and how these lifestyle changes can work to help relatively healthy people get healthier, all the way up to allowing type 2 diabetics to get off their medication. I can't tell you how motivating this conversation was for me to start walking more during the day, especially after dinner. I bet it'll have the same effect on you. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash sick. Ben joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, here we go. Benjamin Bickman, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Brett. I'm delighted to be able to chat with you about all things metabolism. Well, so yeah, you are a professor, a scientist of diabetes and obesity, and you wrote a book called Why We Get Sick, which you discuss a disease that's connected to both diabetes and obesity, and we'll see here in a bit a lot of other diseases as well. The problem with this disease, it's extremely prevalent, but doesn't get much attention, and it's called insulin resistance. So I think to understand what insulin resistance is, you got to understand what insulin is. So I'll start off there. What is insulin? What does it do in our body? Where does our body make it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great place to start. Yeah, insulin is a hormone that is flowing through the blood all the time. It's made from these little cells in the pancreas. And unless a person is a type 1 diabetic, then they are then they have beta cells in their pancreas that are producing insulin all the time. And I do mean all the time, whether you're eating or whether you're fasting, there's some amount of insulin always coming out. Of course, it's higher when, you've, when you're eating and much lower when you're fasting. But insulin's effect is quite robust. It literally uh, will affect every single cell in the body. Every cell in the body has these things called insulin receptors, which are kind of like doors on the cell that only insulin can knock on and and because every cell has insulin receptors and every cell has a different function in the body it's no surprise then that insulin does a lot of different things at different cells but if we were to create a, a theme of of insulin's effects throughout the body i think it would be best described as insulin tells a cell what to do with energy and then relevant to that is its effects or is, is its most famous effect, namely what it does with glucose levels in the blood, where when blood sugar levels or glucose levels are going up, insulin will come in and save the day because if glucose levels stay elevated for too long, that's lethal. And so insulin saves the body by essentially knocking on the doors of certain cells that will then open 
to allow the glucose to come rushing in. Now, not all cells need insulin to tell them to take in glucose, but some of the big ones do, like muscle cells and fat cells. And so that's insulin's most famous effect. And unfortunately, that's partly why insulin resistance itself has become such a problem, though I won't get ahead of myself. All right. So insulin is a hormone that knocks on doors of cells and say, hey, let this energy in. So you mentioned people with type 1 diabetes, their pancreas doesn't produce insulin. And so they have to take artificial insulin. So like, what would happen? Okay, this, maybe this will help us understand like the, the, the importance of insulin. What happens when your body doesn't make insulin? Yeah, yeah. So that is very lethal, uh, which is why a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes 100 years ago, well, a little more than 100 years ago before insulin was used or discovered as a therapy, it was lethal within weeks to months. Very usually, it'd be very rare to live a couple years with it. And, and that's just because a cell, the body essentially doesn't know what to do with energy. And this is a very powerfully uh, affected where you can have a person with type 1 diabetes and in the absence of insulin, because they're not making any, they will have a voracious appetite. They are eating thousands and thousands of calories, four or five or 6,000 calories a day, and yet their body doesn't know what to do with the energy, and so the person is wasting away. I mean, they look like they are an emaciated you know, prisoner of war, and yet again, they're eating several times what their actual caloric needs are. They should have ample fat. They should have robust muscles and bones because there's all that energy, but in the absence of insulin, the cells don't know what to do with it. What are the, okay, if it's, they're eating all that 5,000 calories, 6,000, but they're not storing it or it's not going to the cells, where does yeah. it go? Yeah, yeah. So this is, we're really diving in. This is actually now touching on a bigger debate and a bigger topic, which is what are, what is the root of obesity? I mean, we're kind of alluding to this, although maybe not explicitly, where there's this idea that obesity is purely a metric or, or purely determined by caloric balance. And, and based on caloric balance, these people should be gaining weight or at least maintaining body weight. But it introduces the complexity of obesity and weight management, which is that yes, energy matters, calories matter, but so too do hormones and, and specifically insulin. So to reconcile this kind of the thermodynamics of the untreated type 1 diabetic or in other words, the body with no insulin, we have to appreciate that there are inherent wasting mechanisms that start to take care of this. And I just can think of you know three, and hopefully I can elaborate these as I come through them. One is that metabolic rate itself is going to be much higher than it should be. And th this is very well documented, and we've known this for well over 100 years now. Some of the most legendary physiologists in the early 1900s, and, and they really were legends in, in their field, they identified that the metabolic rate in diabetes was about 20 to 30% higher than it should be. And so this touches on even studies that my own lab has contributed to in recent years, finding that insulin has a depressing effect on metabolic rate. It will literally slow the action or, or the, the rate at which cells are doing their work, which is, you know, in some metabolic rate as we define it. So, so they have a much higher metabolic rate than they should. So they're burning several hundred more calories than they should. They also have a wasting mechanism built in with, uh, with regards to the excess glucose, that when glucose levels are chronically elevated, and this, is, this touches on um, what I said a moment ago with regards to chronically high glucose being, being lethal, you overwhelm the kidney's ability to keep all of that glucose in the blood. And now you start spilling glucose into the urine, and that starts 
pulling water with it, which is why the untreated type 1 diabetic has such a high urine production. But it's that loss. I mean, the person's losing a few hundred calories or so of glucose in the urine. And then the last part is what's happening to with fat metabolism and the production of ketones. When insulin is absent, the body or low, the body is in an exaggerated state of fat burning. And that sounds kind of like pop culture language in a way, and I, and I, and I don't mean for it to, you know, fat burning versus sugar burning. But, but glucose or sugar and fat are the two primary fuels for the body. And insulin is what dictates which fuel is primarily being used by the body. If insulin is elevated, the body is primarily using glucose, or as I like to say, sugar burning. If insulin is low, the body is primarily burning fat or fat burning, of course. When the body is in that fat burning state for a prolonged period, but you know, roughly what could happen within the span of a day, it's burning so much fat, it's burning more than it needs. And this excess, if you will, is, start, is what is converted into ketones. So ketones are essentially the byproducts of fat burning but they do have a caloric value roughly comparable to that of glucose. And in ketosis, or in this state, it's gone beyond just mild ketosis. This is ketoacidosis, where there's you know 10 times more ketones being produced than, uh, than the average person could ever get to, because the average person will always have some insulin. But be that as it may, the, the untreated type 1 diabetic has an incredibly elevated rate of ketone production or ketogenesis. And when it gets to a point now they are, once again, wasting this energy. Again, ketones have a caloric value that we would say, well, do you have to store the calories or you have to burn them? Well, in this case, you're just dumping them from the body like the person is with their glucose. And the person is excreting ketones in the urine at a very high rate and excreting ketones in their breath. And, and again, that means every time the person's exhaling, they are literally exhaling molecules that had a caloric value. And so there are these built-in mechanisms to sum it all up. This the changes in metabolic rate, the changes in ketone production and ketone wasting, and the changes in glucose wasting through the kidneys. All of these allow us to appreciate the absolute necessity of insulin in storing energy. And I don't just mean fat cells. You could say that we're storing energy by forming by, by helping muscle cells form protein and bones form protein and, and helping the liver know what to do with energy, you know, creating lipids to be stored, for example. The liver can't do that if insulin's not there to tell it to. So this is, as I mentioned, of course, touching on the bigger topic of obesity and, and weight management. But if we just bring it back to the diabetic, it certainly, once again, is proof positive that while calories certainly matter when it comes to having an, a body that can store energy and be healthy, it needs, it needs a signal to tell it what to do with the energy. Okay. So type one diabetics, if your body doesn't have insulin, your body basically isn't going to use that energy you give it through food. It's just going to expel it because it doesn't know what to do with it because there's no insulin yes. to knock on the, the doors of cells. So let's talk about insulin resistance. So these are people who their body is making insulin, but for whatever mm -hmm. reason, the insulin is no longer, like the knocks aren't working as effectively. Mm -hmm. So in, in, in explain in simple terms, like what happens? Like how does insulin resistance happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Uh, wonderful. Yes, it, it's, it's an interesting kind of paradox because if, if we were just comparing now the untreated type 1 diabetic where there's no insulin, it would be tempting to conclude, well, if insulin isn't working, 
right, which it isn't in insulin resistance, then they should have the exact same symptoms or same consequences, right? It should be the same, that no insulin should be comparable to insulin not working. But in, in fact, it doesn't play out that way at all because insulin resistance is just a, a little more complicated than that. So insulin resistance, to define it, is I think the best analogy is like a coin that I'm holding in my hand between my thumb and my index finger, a, a coin. And I call this coin insulin resistance, the coin itself. Now, this coin has two sides, and there are two aspects to insulin resistance. One is, as the name suggests, insulin isn't working the same way that it used to. Now, the complexity there, or the nuance, is that that is not to say that every cell is failing to respond to insulin. If that were the case, then insulin resistance really would just be another, be, would be identical to the untreated type 1 diabetic. That is not the case. And so by insulin resistance at the level of the cells, we have to more accurately say insulin isn't working the same way at some cells. And that's important because while some cells are insulin resistant, like some fat cell effects or some muscle cell effects, it's not even global within the cell itself. It's some of insulin's effects may be compromised in some cells, but in those very same cells, some of what insulin's telling the cell to do can continue to operate just fine. And in fact, the liver represents a tremendous example of that. The liver, um, insulin will normally tell the liver to inhibit ketogenesis. In other words, block the production of ketones. Well, insulin can tell the liver to do that always. Whether the liver is insulin sensitive or insulin resistant, insulin always is able to inhibit ketogenesis. In contrast, on the insulin sensitive liver, insulin would tell the liver to store glucose as a molecule called glycogen. It basically is telling the liver, hey, we got a lot of glucose in the blood. I need you to pull it in and store it for later use. But when the liver is insulin resistant, that doesn't happen anymore. And now in contrast to the liver storing glucose as glycogen, it's breaking down the glycogen, releasing that stored glucose into the bloodstream, increasing the glucose even more, which makes insulin have to work harder and now we're just self-perpetuating the problem or it becomes a vicious cycle. So that was the one side of the coin, that some cells are failing to respond to insulin like they should. The other side of the coin, and this is very important, is that blood insulin levels are elevated. This is a condition that we call hyperinsulinemia. But this matters, especially because of the cells that still respond to insulin. Because remember, only some of the cells have become insulin resistant. Many of them still have a normal sensitivity to insulin. They've never become insulin resistant. Now they're simply suffering because there's too much insulin telling them to do too much. And the best example of that among many is what happens in the ovaries of women. Insulin will normally inhibit the production of estrogens from testosterone. So, so it's a little known fact that all estrogens in men and women come from androgens, you know, and, and testosterone being the prototypical androgen. So there's this conversion from androgens to estrogens. That's how it always happens. In the ovaries, it happens more than it does in the testes. Uh, but insulin inhibits that process. And so now the ovary, who has perfect insulin sensitivity, is flooded with the insulin that is rising in this condition called insulin resistance. And it's, so there's too much insulin inhibiting the production of estrogens too much. And thus her ovaries are releasing too few estrogens to maintain a normal ovulatory cycle. And unfortunately, too many androgens for her body, giving her say the acne or the excess body growth that comes along with polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS. 
Okay, so just to summarize there, what's going on? So insulin resistance, some cells, it's whenever there's too much insulin, some cells become basically desensitized to it. Not all yep. cells, some cells. Yep. And then as a consequence, the body makes more insulin to compensate for that. And that can become another problem, like you said, on the other side of the coin, because some cells that have no problem with insulin insensitivity get flooded with insulin and that can cause cascading problems. Did mm-hmm. I get, did yep, I get that perfect. right? Perfect. Okay. So I think when people have heard, talked about insulin, they typically see it connected with blood glucose and that, you know, maybe they are a type two diabetic or they, they're, they're told by the doctor, you have prediabetes because your blood glucose level is too high. Mm-hmm. You make the case in your book that blood glucose is a useful marker, but you said you make the case that it's more, probably more useful to focus on insulin levels as opposed to blood glucose levels. Why is that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you're allowing me to elaborate on this because it's something it's sort of one of my missions and my professional mission in life. My main mission, of course, is to be a good husband, father. My professional mission is to spread the word of insulin. So yeah, glucose has become the focus in any conversation of metabolic health, um, in, in any, any invoking, any invocation of insulin almost always still will do so with a, a primary focus on glucose. And I think that has, that is what has led us down the problematic path that we find ourselves on. So as, as you and I have both said now, one of insulin's, well, insulin's most famous effect is what it does to blood glucose. But that paradigm, that glucocentric paradigm is what has, again, put us on this problematic path. And, and it's best viewed temporally. So if we look at an individual who's living their lives and living, living his or her life through over the years, let's say this, this fellow is progressing towards type 2 diabetes. And the fact is most of us are. And over these years, he's becoming more and more insulin resistant. And, and so if, if we had these two variables that we were tracking, we have glucose that we can track and we have insulin that we can track. What's been happening over these years, and this is a process that can go on for decades, the insulin is climbing. It's getting ever higher, higher and higher and higher, but it's working well enough to keep the glucose in check. And so every year the patient's coming in for a visit and they're gaining weight. They may have hypertension, like high blood pressure. They may have infertility. And, and because the glucose is staying normal, the physician is simply prescribing an antihypertensive medication or here's a fertility medication, not knowing because our paradigm doesn't allow a focus of in, on insulin, that insulin has been waging this silent war behind the scenes for 10 or 20 years. And then it's only when the body becomes so resistant to its own insulin, even though it's swimming in a sea of it, that now the glucose starts to climb. Insulin simply can't keep the glucose in check anymore, reflective of this growing insulin resistance. And now the glucose starts to climb. And then 10 or 20 years later, we finally detect the problem. And again, uh, you can see the tragedy here. We've detected the problem much, much later than we should have if we had been looking at it through an insulin-centric paradigm. And so, in other words, insulin is a much more sensitive marker, a much earlier indicator of metabolic disarray. But the tragedy in that paradigm persists when it comes to treatment because now the patient who has this mounting blood glucose level, very often they are given insulin as a therapy. And already, I'm sure the listeners can see the problem with this. I just described this person's situation, which is that they're swimming in a sea of insulin, and now the glucose starts to climb. This is not a disease of insufficient insulin. 
you know, it's a disease of too much insulin and we've become too resistant to it. But the traditional paradigm is that it's a glucose disease. So they will, the average clinician, look at the mounting, the, the rising glucose and say, well, you know what, here's insulin. Just take some insulin and this will push the glucose down. And it will. It does. It, by putting the type 2 diabetic or the person who's moving towards type 2 diabetes on insulin as a therapy, it will help lower their glucose. But the tragedy is not a single clinical outcome improves once we put a type 2 diabetic on insulin. And in fact, the more aggressively we give them insulin to lower their glucose, they become three times more likely to die from heart disease and twice as likely to develop Alzheimer's disease, twice as likely to die from cancer. And they gain a significant amount of weight. They gain about 20 pounds in six months. So when we do this, when we ignore the insulin and we give them even more of what they're, they already have too much of, then we make them fatter and sicker and we kill them faster. Because this is not, it's not a glucose disease. It's an insulin disease. Okay. And so just to clarify, there's a distinction there. Type 1 diabetes, the problem is not enough insulin or no insulin. So you have to give insulin. Yes. Type 2 diabetes, the problem is too much insulin. That's exactly right. Yeah, Brett. So that, that allow me just to elaborate just for one second. This is, I think it's tragic that we've ever put those two diseases together that we call them diabetes, both of them, type one and type two, I think is, is a tragedy because it suggests that they're similar diseases when in fact they're opposites. In, as you just said, type one diabetes is a disease of deficient insulin. Type two diabetes is a disease of too much. And, and so giving, I mean, we haven't, I haven't elaborated the paradigm this way, but we, we've already uh, elaborated on the fact that insulin resistance is a state of too much insulin. But the fact is too much insulin is a driver of insulin resistance. Not that we've really dived into the causes of insulin resistance yet, but elevated insulin is what I consider a primary cause of insulin resistance. And so by giving the type two diabetic insulin, we're making the problem worse and, and pardon the kind of harsh analogy, but that's like treating an alcoholic with another glass of wine or treating someone with hyperthyroidism by giving them more thyroid hormone. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk about what's going on, like what causes insulin resistance. And you, in the book, you say that this, the number of people in our population, particularly in Western industrialized countries, and it's expanding beyond the West, that you're seeing it increase all over the world. The number of people with insulin resistance is on the rise. Do we have a figure like how many people have or perhaps have insulin resistance? Because as you said, it's usually you don't know till it's too late, till the blood glucose is measured because most people aren't measuring their insulin levels. So do we have an estimate about how many people have insulin resistance or mm -hmm. what percentage of the population? Yeah, yeah. So we, we do have an estimate. In the United States, this, this shouldn't be a surprise. We actually have a pretty good idea. Now, I understand a lot of people like to criticize the United States. It seems, and I'm born and raised in Canada and I've lived in multiple countries and traveled to dozens and dozens of them. No one likes to insult the United States like Americans do, unfortunately. So we tend to be our own most harsh critics. But the problem is bad here in part because we've documented it so well. But the evidence suggests that in other countries, it's it's worse in some of them. So some of our best numbers, uh, and I believe this is an accurate assessment, a, a paper published a couple years ago from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, they suggested that 88% of U.S. adults are considered metabolically unfit. Not surprisingly, in their manuscript, they considered that a, quote, alarmingly low level of fit individuals. And I agree, that is alarmingly low. They based that assessment on whether or not the people had some markers of the metabolic syndrome. 
I'm sure everyone's heard of this. This is the constellation of problems that encompasses waist circumference, high blood pressure, high glucose, and dyslipidemia, like in other words, low HDL or high triglycerides. Mind you, no mention of LDL, importantly. But this they found only 12% of US adults were good in all five of those metrics. That's a problem. And in I think it's relevant to this conversation simply because while they were doing this with the stated objective of determining the metabolic syndrome prevalence, the metabolic syndrome used to be called the insulin resistance syndrome. And so to me and and to others who are scrutinizing this, these are markers of insulin resistance. So potentially almost nine in 10 adults in the United States have some degree of insulin resistance. Now, as I alluded to, this is not a local problem. And I appreciate you mentioning that too. The problem actually might be worse in Mexico. It could be worse in several countries in the Middle East. In fact, the most diabetic countries, type two diabetes on the planet, uh, I think eight of the top 10 are in the Middle East. It's a tremendous problem. And then I think the 10th was a country in Southeast Asia, uh, a country that I love and I've studied, done research there in in a country called Singapore. But even throughout some countries in Southeast Asia, we have a problem. So the United States, yes, it's an enormous issue here, but we don't, we're not in the number one spot of this dreaded list. And, And again, we've not talked on the consequences, but it's part of the problem is we simply don't Um, detect it soon enough. We don't talk about insulin enough. We just talk about the glucose. And as we said, that's the glucose is just a marker of insulin. That's right. Okay. Well, so, okay. It's been increasing among, it's across the population, like nine in 10 adults, like 90% of the adult population probably has insulin resistance. I imagine, was this a problem 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, or has it been getting worse? And if so, like, do we know why it's getting worse? Yeah. Yeah. So there's no question this is getting worse. All of these diseases we have nowadays are are disorders that our ancestors couldn't have even dreamed of. And partly because they were more worried about infections than we are, uh, you know, our that really is the single most telling difference is the presence of antibiotics that we have now and and the breadth of them and the efficacy of them is a testament to science. But yeah, these diseases that we all think are distinct, things like cancers and Alzheimer's disease, heart disease, fatty liver disease, infertility, they all share a common core of insulin resistance. Now, I'm not silly enough to claim that insulin resistance is the only input or the only cause of these diseases. No, they're all multifactorial. But the fact is, insulin resistance is a common and prominent thread woven through all of them. And and, and the general premise of my book is that if our ongoing reluctance to acknowledge the relevance of insulin is partly what's putting us in this position. And it is wholly a function of the environment we live in and almost totally a function of the food we eat. Okay. So yeah, I want to dig deeper into like some of the problems that are related to insulin resistance. So you, okay, the environment. So what is about our food today that basically causes the body to have to create too much insulin, which will cause insulin resistance? Yeah. So I consider there to be three primary causes of insulin resistance. Two of them are have nothing to do with food. And I'll start with them just because they're so simple, but they are real. And by I, I consider these to be primary causes because you can cause insulin resistance with all three of these that I'll elaborate on in a moment in every biomedical model that scientists will use to study insulin resistance. And that includes isolated cells, like cells that are grown in little Petri dishes in a lab, or it includes laboratory rodents like mice and rats that we will sometimes use in our studies, and then humans, you know, the pinnacle of all life on the planet. Even in humans, you can cause insulin resistance with these three stimuli, each on their own, so they are independent. One of them is stress. 
And so the, the prototypical stress hormones, cortisol and epinephrine, will cause insulin resistance in all three biomedical models. And this is relevant to humans, of course. It's mostly relevant to our sleep habits because it, bad sleep leads to elevated stress hormones. And that will, in fact, cause insulin resistance even after one bad night of sleep. Now, thankfully, one good night of sleep can correct it, but it just touches on the relevance of the stress hormones. So stress is a primary cause. Another one is inflammation. Now, inflammation is a term that it's almost cliche. It's thrown around so often these days, and I, I'm using it quite carefully. So the activation of these, what we could call inflammatory pathways within cells or these, but the biochemical process of activating these immune-related pathways will cause insulin resistance in cells and rodents and humans. And so it's a primary cause. And this is um, most obvious in conditions of autoimmune diseases, where if someone has an autoimmune disease and the autoimmune disease is very active or aggressive for a period of time, because it tends to ebb and flow, then the insulin resistance will be quite pronounced. Then as the autoimmune disease subsides for a time, so too does the insulin resistance and they're insulin sensitive again. Now, I don't elaborate on those too much because it's hard to control them. If you know, you're know you talking to someone and you say, well, lower your stress and lower your inflammation, they say, well, thanks. Uh, you know, that's easier said than done. The thing that is very potent now is the elephant in the room, and that's the food we eat. Um, essentially, the problem is we have created a diet and a way of eating that is spiking our insulin all day. So the average individual wakes up in the morning, and overnight, insulin has been coming down and helping the body be a little more insulin sensitive and, and frankly, get into a higher state of fat burning, which is why some people may be in a very mild state of ketosis upon waking. And tragically, what do we do? Well, breakfast has become basically a dessert, and we eat a starchy, sugary breakfast. It's some starchy, sugary cereal or a starchy bagel or starchy toast or sugary orange juice or something or a sugar-loaded coffee. We then spike our insulin rapidly. And we know that an insulin spiking breakfast, and by that I mean there are there's clinical studies to prove this in humans, by spiking insulin for breakfast, we have quicker return to hunger. So we get hungrier sooner. And so then two or three hours later, what do they do? They spike their insulin again. Right as insulin was cresting and about to come down, we spike it again with a starchy mid-morning snack. And right when insulin's about to come down, we bump it up again with our lunch, and we do it again in the afternoon, again for dinner, and again throughout the evening with our snacking. So the average person is living every moment of their waking life in a state of elevated insulin and, frankly, into maybe half of their sleeping time, too, because insulin will take a few hours to come back down. And that chronically elevated insulin is a primary driver of insulin resistance. And, and, and of course, that I think really does point the finger at our excessive consumption of refined carbohydrates. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Gearheads know that some project needs so many parts, it feels like you need a whole storage unit just to store them. That's what eBay Motors' 122 million parts are for. Think of it as your virtual parts garage. They've always got the right fitment at the right prices. Use the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. Whether it's stress, a demanding morning schedule, or trouble sleeping, we all know that sometimes life keeps you up. 
And trying to conquer the day after a night of tossing and turning is not so easy. Now you can get the sleep you deserve with ZQuil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies. ZQuil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies are designed to help you fall asleep naturally with no next day grogginess. Made at an optimal level of melatonin combined with a proprietary blend of other botanicals like chamomile and lavender, ZQuil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies help to regulate your sleep cycle instead of just knocking you out. They're non-habit forming and work with your body to help you get the sleep you need. And to top it off, they come in a great tasting wild berry vanilla flavor. So I've been using ZQuil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies for the past month now. Really have enjoyed it. I've used melatonin in the past to help me fall asleep when I've had trouble falling asleep. I like the Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies because, well, it comes in a gummy format. Who does not like gummies? The botanical blend helps you feel nice and relaxed, drift off to sleep. And the next day, don't feel groggy. Check out ZQuil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies and the full line of Pure Z's Sleep Aids to start sleeping soundly today. And now back to the show. Okay, so yeah, we're just... The world is increasingly eating more, just pounding away processed carbs, sugar. And we'll talk a little more more later on at the end about what we can do to become more insulin sensitive. But besides food, the other thing you talk about is we've become more sedentary. Mm -hmm. What role does movement play or the lack of movement play in insulin resistance? Yeah, yeah. One of the nice things about the way the muscles are built is that the moment the muscle starts, well, moving contracting and relaxing, it becomes able to pull in glucose without the need of insulin. In other words, it opens those glucose doors, even though insulin isn't there knocking on them. And so it's an insulin independent mechanism of glucose uptake. And this is very relevant. You can take a person who eats a starchy, sugary snack or meal, and if they just get up and go on even a modest walk of 10 to 20 minutes, their glucose levels will not get as high as they would have. It will only go up to about half as high as it would have, and it comes down much, much faster. The same goes with insulin because, yeah, you're, you're flushing your body, your blood with all that glucose you just ate, but the moment you start moving those muscles, well, by mass, muscle represents the primary tissue in the body, and it is overwhelmingly the main consumer of glucose. Roughly 80% of the glucose that gets cleared from our blood goes into the muscle. And so if we just get up and start moving our muscles around, we start just pulling in. The muscles begin greedily consuming all of that glucose. And so insulin, right when the beta cells of the pancreas were about to load the system with all that insulin, they sense that the glucose is dropping rapidly on its own. And so what would have been an enormous insulin release becomes a very modest insulin release because the muscles have essentially saved the day. So that, that's, that's at least some part of the power of exercise used in that acute moment after eating a starchy or sugary meal. But the implications are broader where if someone is exercising frequently, especially if it's a, a higher intensity exercise, then they have the potential to gain or at least retain muscle mass. And as I mentioned, Muscle is the main consumer of glucose. So if you have more muscle, you simply have more little mouths that are going to eat up all that glucose from the blood. And this certainly plays out. People with higher muscle mass can clear glucose much, much faster from the blood than people with less muscle mass, even if they weigh the same. Okay. So I think we have a good idea of what insulin resistance is, what causes it. And as we said before, when people think about insulin resistance, they typically connect it to metabolic conditions like prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. But in your book, Why We Get Sick, you talk about, well, no, insulin or too much insulin not only contributes to diabetes, 
but it's contributing to other sicknesses as well. And you've kind of mentioned them throughout our conversation. The first one is heart and cardiovascular disease. What role does insulin resistance play in those? Yeah. In fact, that's a that's an enormously intimate association. The heart disease is a very broad term that, that applies to a lot of specific cardiovascular issues. The most common is hypertension or elevated blood pressure. And so I might, maybe I'll just focus on that one for the sake of time. But with insulin resistance, insulin has a direct effect on controlling blood pressure. The most obvious one is that insulin, when it's elevated, will force the kidneys to hold on to salt. Normally the kidneys, if salt goes up, if you and I were to eat a load of salt, our kidneys would just excrete it all very easily without any complication. And our blood pressure wouldn't really change a blip. But when insulin is elevated, let's say you eat that salty food with an insulin spiking starch or sugar, and let's face it, a lot of people do, salty and crunchy is one of the kind of vices of most people's eating, then now the kidneys can't excrete that salt. And so they have to hold on to that salt. And where salt goes, water follows. And so as the blood is holding on to the salt, now it's holding on to all that water that it wanted to excrete. And more water means higher volume of blood. And as physics demands, more volume means more pressure. And so we have an increased blood pressure. At the same time, as the blood vessels themselves are becoming insulin resistant, they can't dilate as well as they used to. And if naturally, if a blood vessel can dilate, it's expanding. And that would mean, you know, that that the volume of the, the space there has gotten bigger. And so the pressure will go down. But it can't happen. When the blood vessels themselves become insulin resistant, now they stay in a more constricted or narrowed state. And naturally, that keeps blood pressure or not, it keeps it high, but it pushes it even higher. And then maybe one last example, because there are even more than I could mention. When insulin levels are, are chronically elevated, it activates something called the sympathetic nervous system. And I'm sure your audience has heard of this, but this is the infamous fight or flight response. And so when insulin's high, the heart rate starts beating harder or, or higher and harder, and the blood vessels once again constrict. That's part of the normal sympathetic response, like if we needed to run away from danger, for example, or react very quickly. That's a, it's a pronounced benefit in that circumstance. But in this case of this kind of artificial sympathetic response because of the chronically elevated insulin, it becomes purely pathological or pathogenic. It starts to hurt the blood vessels in the cardiovascular system. Okay. So insulin, too much insulin, insulin resistance, it's not good for our heart or cardiovascular system. You also talk about the effect of insulin on our reproductive system. And you mentioned, you know, a a female reproductive issue, which is PCOS. What about men? Does, Does too much insulin or insulin resistance affect a male reproductive health? Yes, it sure does. I'm thrilled you mentioned that because I, I, I'm always reluctant to just mention PCOS and think the gals are, and have the gals just think I'm kind of coming after them. No, it's certainly relevant to the guys as well. So while PCOS is the most common form of infertility in females, the counterpart in males, the most common infertility is erectile dysfunction. And that is entirely a problem of blood vessels. And in fact, I actually alluded to it or explained the problem just now, where when the blood vessels become insulin resistant, they can't dilate or open as well as they used to. And that, of course, is an essential physiological change in a fellow in order to have normal fertility. And so if he suddenly has blood vessels that cannot dilate, well, then he, is, he, then he has erectile dysfunction. And it's entirely 
a consequence of the insulin resistance at the blood vessels. A lot of people misunderstand erectile dysfunction and they'll claim that it's a result of low testosterone. That is, that is just not true. More and more individuals that study this, in fact, there was a paper published just a couple of years ago and the title reveals everything you need to know. And it was something like, is erectile dysfunction the earliest manifestation of insulin resistance in men? That was, you know, so the, the title of the manuscript was kind of posed as that question. And, and the answer throughout the manuscript was, yes, it is. And, and again, it's simply a matter of, of insulin resistance affecting the blood vessels. And once affected, they can't dilate. And a lack of dilation means a lack of erectile dysfunction. One thing my sort of rudimentary understanding of endocrinology is that hormones affect hormones. Does, do we know if insulin affects testosterone in any way? Yeah, that's a great question. It does through the reaction of converting androgens to estrogens. And so you'd think, well, if the same thing's happening in a guy's testes, then he should have more androgens being released, you know, because that's what's happening in the woman with her ovaries. Higher insulin is resulting in higher testosterone, but that does not happen in the testes. There's not that same effect. And unfortunately, so there's not a direct effect of insulin on testosterone, but there's an indirect effect through the fat cell. As insulin is promoting the growth of the fat cell, which it does very readily, fat cells end up acting kind of like ovaries. And so the fat cells that are growing on the man actually will pull in testosterone and pump out estrogens as a result. It'll convert the androgens to estrogens, just like the woman's ovaries are doing. Okay, so we've talked about reproductive health. The chapter that's kind of scary when I read it is insulin resistance role or potential role in cancer. Are there particular cancers where there's a strong connection with insulin resistance? Yes, yes, there sure is. I share that kind of sobering sentiment that you do, that sobering view of cancer. I have a very hearty respect for it and, and, and a fear of it because it seems like one of those things that you can't do much about. Well, in some instances, that's undoubtedly the case because cancer is such an unknown beast of, of unknown origins. But the most common cancers, breast and prostate cancers, have very strong evidence linking them to insulin resistance. For example, breast tumors will, one of the many mutations that they will manifest with is a mutation in the insulin receptor. And breast tumors will have about seven times more insulin receptors than even neighboring breast tissue that's not cancerous will have. And at the kind of broader level, independent of any other variable like obesity, for example, that is a risk factor for breast and prostate cancers, you can control for obesity and insulin resistance still persists as a more relevant risk factor. So the evidence is there's some direct evidence of insulin receptor mutations enhancing the effect of insulin on the cancer cells. And then there's that more indirect finding just these correlations. But the relevance also has one other aspect to it, which is glucose. Cancer cells eat glucose. That is their primary fuel. They eat about 200 times more glucose than the normal cell does. And so the tragedy, of course, in the average individual who has rising insulin and rising glucose is that you have all that insulin signaling the growth or stimulating the growth of the cancer cell, and you have all that glucose fueling all of that explosive growth. Okay, so here's the one. That you didn't talk about this in your book because it, the book came out before this hit, but I imagine as a, a scientist who researches insulin resistance, the COVID pandemic provided an opportunity to study the connection between insulin resistance and COVID. Have, has there been any research done in that area? 
Yes, there, there has been, but very, very little. Now, there's no question that there's a metabolic aspect to COVID. And at the risk of offending some, while many want to claim that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, I, I just don't think that's fair. I don't think that's accurate. I think it is more accurate to say it's a pandemic of pre-existing conditions because that just continue, every single study continues to confirm that if a person has these relevant or underlying metabolic pre-existing conditions, they are much, much more susceptible to having a serious infection. And, they're, and they carry a much higher load, so there's higher potential for transmission. And we know even further that the vaccines are less effective in these individuals. Now, and I hate for that to sound incriminating in any way. And, and I really do. I don't intend for it to sound like that. But uh, as a scientist, I do want to be precise. And, and I don't think there's any value in ignoring data, even if it's a little inconvenient. I think nobody benefits in that regard. So the connection between insulin resistance and COVID-19, there is one study that I know of that has looked at insulin levels versus glucose levels. And the general finding was that they both appear to be predictive. But I will maybe more focus on the glucose aspect and, and at the risk of diminishing insulin resistance, the relevance of insulin resistance. But when, when a cell has become infected with a virus, it tends to start using glucose at a higher rate. So once again, in this metabolically unhealthy individual, we have the potential where we're fueling this growth. And not to, I'll be very brief on this because I fear that it would be getting off topic, but fat cells are a very welcoming host for COVID-19. A virus is very distinct from a bacterium where the bacteria is its own self-contained cell. A virus is simply a particle of peptides and it needs, it needs a, a, a cell to, to infect, and then that cell begins producing more of the virus. And in order to get in a cell, a virus needs a co-receptor. It basically needs its a, a doorway that allows it to come in. And fat cells tend to have more of those doorways than almost any other cell in the body. And so naturally, if you have more fat cells, you have more potential homes for the virus to come into, and then it turns the home into a factory, producing ever more of itself. Okay, so let's talk about another problem or disease that we associate insulin or insulin resistance with, and that's obesity. So just as insulin resistance has been increasing across populations, so has obesity. So the question is, is it the insulin resistance that's causing obesity or is it the obesity increasing body weight causing insulin resistance? Yeah. Yeah. So the answer to that two-sided question is yes, Brett. I okay. hate to right. <laughs> take a, uh, but I'll elaborate very briefly. So there's no question that when fat cells are growing, they are becoming insulin, uh, they start to promote insulin resistance. There's no question that happens. So fat tissue can grow through different ways, but if it's growing through a process called hypertrophy, or each individual fat cell is growing rather than we are pulling in new fat cells and making new, have an increased number of fat cells. But if it's through hypertrophy or each individual fat cell getting bigger and bigger, then they start to become increasingly insulin resistant. And they do that to try to control its own growth because the fat cells essentially signaling to insulin, insulin, you want me to continue to grow, but I'm reaching a point of maximum dimension and I can't grow beyond this. So I need to become a little insulin resistant. And that's why most people have a limit to how fat they can get. You know, the, the individuals that are on these documentaries where they're super, super morbidly obese, the average person can't get that fat. They, those are the few individuals who are getting fat through a process called hyperplasia, which is when the fat cells themselves are pretty modestly sized. They just start making new fat cells all the time. 
So there's almost this limitless potential for fat growth. And paradoxically, Brett, while these people become remarkably overweight and obese, they actually maintain a pretty high level of insulin sensitivity. And that's because the fat cells are always happily storing more energy and they're never getting too big because anytime they start to get a little big, well, then they just have a new fat cell get created. So anyway, back to the discussion, there's no question that fat tissue, if it's growing through hypertrophy, will contribute to insulin resistance. But there's also evidence to suggest the opposite, that as the body has higher and higher levels of insulin, which is happening with insulin resistance, that that precedes weight gain. And evidence from a guy named Jim Johnson, who's at the University of British Columbia, he finds that in, in these animal studies that he's done, that has to happen, that, that you can't promote the fat growth without the elevated insulin. So I'm certainly suggesting the relevance of insulin at the fat cells. So there's, I, I, I think the view that excess weight or the growing fat cells will cause insulin resistance is absolute consensus. Everyone would nod their heads to that. There's less of a consensus that insulin resistance can proceed and even contribute to weight gain. There's evidence to support it, and I just cited it, but it, it's a much less prominent view. But I think it's a valuable one. And I imagine that there's it, it goes back and forth. So as you as insulin resistance causes an increase in fat cell size, that fat cell size is going to cause more insulin resistance. So it's sort of like this vicious cycle that's going on. Yeah, that's right. And, and my view is a, is a fat-first perspective, which is the fat cell is generally the first to become insulin resistant because through the process I just mentioned of hypertrophy. And then that starts to spread the insulin resistance through other mechanisms, basically through the rest of the body. So, okay, let's talk about, we talked about all these problems that can be uh, caused by insulin resistance. What do you, what do you do about it? So like the first question is like, how do you even know if you're insulin resistant? Is there a test you can take to see if your insulin levels are elevated? Cause usually, you know, you, you go to the, the CVS and buy a blood glucose test, but I'm, I haven't seen an insulin test there. No, no, there isn't one. And that's certainly a, an ongoing hurdle and, and why glucose continues to occupy the primary position in this discussion, because it's just so much easier to measure. But yeah, you can get insulin measured, and that is kind of the least thing you can do or you ought to do in order to determine your insulin resistance status. So next time a person's going in for a blood test, just kind of beg, plead, cajole, pay off your clinician to check the box and say, measure the insulin. That's something that every lab can do nowadays, a clinical lab. It's just whether or not the physician will do it. And, and sometimes whether or not the insurance will pay for it, but more and more it will. Even if it won't, a person can get it done usually for like 20 bucks or something. So yeah, get your insulin measured to know where your insulin levels are. That's a great, great way to get a feel for where you're at. Now, there are some surrogates here, like a poor man's method of measuring insulin resistance status can be done just by looking at a, a ratio of your lipid levels in your blood. And so if a person, every blood test thankfully will measure triglycerides and every blood test will measure HDL cholesterol. Well, those are the two ones you need. So take the triglycerides number and divide it by HDL. So triglycerides over HDL cholesterol. If that answer is less than 1.5, then that's a very good sign that you are insulin sensitive. If that answer is above 1.5 and getting higher into the twos or the threes, the higher it's getting, the more insulin resistant you are. So that's a very reliable indicator. So if you can't get your insulin measured, then at least look at your lipids, which again are always measured, and that'll give you a pretty good idea of where you're at. When you do measure insulin levels, what's the level where you're like, okay, insulin resistance is probably happening yeah, right now? Yeah, yeah. 
Right, right. Yeah, I should have said that. It's around 10 microunits per mil. So here in the U.S., those are the units that we'll use with, with insulin, microunits per mil. In other countries, it may be picamoles. We don't do that here. So if a person's, if your fasting insulin is around 10 microunits per mil or less, that's a great sign. Okay, let's say someone has insulin resistance, and chances are the person listening to this right now probably does, because about 9 in 10 Americans have insulin resistance. Is insulin resistance reversible? And if so, what are some things you can do to reverse insulin resistance? Yeah, yeah. The good news is it, it is almost immediately reversible, and, and really within weeks. Like You can take someone with profound insulin resistance. They're, they're, they're really type 2 diabetic deep into type 2 diabetes. They're that insulin resistant. And within just weeks, they become so insulin sensitive that they can get off all their medications, you know, of course, under clinical supervision. So in my view, there are four steps or, or four pillars rather, because it doesn't need to be sequential. So I shouldn't say steps. Four pillars that can be used to build the uh, proper foundation of an insulin sensitizing diet. And the first one is control carbohydrates. I'm not saying don't eat any but those are the biggest offenders. So control them. Don't eat your carbohydrates from a bag or a box with a barcode. Focus on raw carbohydrates, you know, or you know, mildly cooked or processed fruits and vegetables. Those are the main one, main ones to eat. Be very careful with with grains. They always have much more starch and will have a higher glucose and insulin effect. And and then of course the more processed it is, like even juicing the fruits and vegetables, you want to avoid. Eat your fruits and vegetables, don't drink them. So that's what I mean by control carbohydrates. And then next, prioritize protein. Protein has a modest effect on insulin, but it, it's fine. It's a very modest effect, and proteins are essential. And most people aren't getting enough to sustain their lean mass, namely muscle and bone. And so focus on protein. Eat it frequently and get it from animal sources. It's it's a very uncomfortable thing for some these days, but there's no question animal protein is superior to any plant protein, every conceivable metric. And I know this is upsetting. A lot of people truly are offended by me saying this, but I'm not going to deny human physiology just to be you know politically correct. Every animal protein is superior to any plant protein, full stop. So make sure you're getting the animal protein. Now, the third one is don't fear fat. Fat has no effect on insulin, and we've been eating it for millennia. Well, since the beginning of, of who we are, however humans came to be, we've been eating fat since the beginning, and that includes animal fat most especially. So focus on animal fats and fruit fats. The fruit fats are coconuts, avocados, olives, and as much as you can, studiously avoid the seed, the refined seed oils, or what some people will call, through an act of clever marketing, vegetable oil. There's nothing vegetable about it. These are seed oils refined from soybeans, cotton seed, or corn seeds, uh, etc. Avoid them like the plague. Uh, and unfortunately, well, fortunately, if you're avoiding, if you're not getting your carbs from a bag or a box or with a barcode, then you're doing a good job already because it's those processed carbs and the main fat in them will be from these seed oils. So as you're eating be very liberal with fats from animals and fruits. We're well adapted to those. And then the last one, the fourth pillar, is take a break from eating all the time. You don't need to eat three meals a day all the time. You don't you especially don't need to eat six meals a day all the time. If you want to improve your insulin sensitivity, give your body a break from eating. 
and engage in some form of intermittent fasting. There are so many ways to do this, but just give your body a break from eating all the time. Occasionally, maybe even do a 24-hour food fast where you're just drinking water, no calories during that time. And then on occasion, skip a breakfast or eat a very, very modest dinner in order to just help insulin get down a little faster or stay low longer. Besides diet, what role does movement play in preventing insulin resistance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent question. I'm often asked what's the best exercise, and my my kind of witty response is the one you'll do. And but I do mean it. Any form of movement is going to be beneficial. So just get up and move. You can strategically do that if you only know if you know you've only got 30 minutes a day to exercise. Well, you can do a hell of a lot in 30 minutes. But maybe if you're older and less capable physically, then couple that with the meal in which you eat the most starches, just like I explained earlier, do a brisk walk at the end of that. But for those of us that are more capable physically, then the more aggressive we can be, the better. Have a high intensity workout as often as you can. It doesn't need to be long. Mine are only around 30 minutes and I'm in my mid forties and it's been sufficient to keep my muscle. I just do very, very brief rests basically to failure every set. But whatever you're doing, do what you can to move the muscles and especially do what you can to increase your muscle mass. Yeah, and strength training, like you're getting free yes. pumping of glucose into your body without insulin, which is... That's right. And by helping increase your muscle mass, you're walking around every moment of the day with a better glucose sink, so to speak. And there's some other weird things you can do. I mean, I wouldn't like bank on these little things to do to increase insulin sensitivity, but they're interesting. Like we've talked about and written about cold showers on the website and the podcast mm-hmm. before. And there's actually research to say that cold showers can help increase insulin sensitivity. Yeah. Yeah. Through two distinct mechanisms. One is just through shivering. And when you're shivering, your muscles are spasming. And if that's a muscle contraction, so they start pulling in the glucose just like they would if you were exercising. And then the second thing during cold exposure is you're activating this unique type of fat called brown fat. And brown fat, oddly, has a very high metabolic rate. It's not designed to store fat like your white fat cells are. This is designed to burn energy glucose and fat to produce heat. And so cold therapy will activate brown fat very aggressively. And then you're just chewing through your glucose that much faster. All right. So these are all simple lifestyle changes that people can make. What if they, what if someone does all these things, the insulin is still staying high. Is there a certain point where you thought like, well, I might, there's other medications you take or there are medical interventions Mm -hmm. you might have to do? Yeah. So frankly, Brett, usually they won't, but just for the sake of um, argument. Let's let's say that maybe they would just to introduce the drugs. Sure. But again, um, they're not nearly as effective. Even the most effective drugs, and that'll be the first one I mention in a moment, is only half as effective as even modest lifestyle changes. So if the lifestyle changes don't work, then you're you're hosed, um, pretty much. <laughs> um, so usually it's people go to lifestyle changes once the drugs stop working. That's usually the way it goes because drugs do have heavy diminishing returns. But the most common that is prescribed because of its efficacy and the minimal side effects, because every drug has a side effect, is one called metformin. That's the most widely prescribed anti-diabetic drug in the world, and for good reason. It's very affordable because it's it's off patent now, and it's it's very effective with generally minimal side effects. So that's typically the first one, and that's one that I give the highest grade to of all the available drugs, but there are so many more that 
would take too much time for me to get into. So sure. I'll just end it there. Usually metformin will be the first one. And and thankfully it works pretty well with minimal side effects. But the point your take home point is that you're better off doing these lifestyle changes because one, they're free and there's no side effects. And they work. And the only yep, that that's exactly right. Yeah. So you could imagine someone whose physician says, All right, you have type two diabetes or you're really pre-diabetic, you're on the doorstep of type two diabetes. You have two options. One is to go and do a lifestyle change. And then and you'll probably reverse the disease if you're smart about it. Alternatively, you can leave my office with a prescription for, say, metformin. If this is the only path you take, the drug path, you will never get off the drugs. All that will happen, and this sounds I'm like I'm being hyperbolic here, but this is exactly how it goes, where the person will be given a prescription. The only outcome is that they increase the dose of that drug, and then as that becomes increasingly ineffective, then they have a different drug that they add on to it, and then a different one, and that puts them on this path of never reversing the disease. That, that is why conventional medicine will say type 2 diabetes is irreversible, because if you treat it in the conventional way with drugs, it is. The drugs will never solve the problem. If, however, you acknowledge that type 2 diabetes is a disease of the food we eat, essentially, that the food is the culprit or the cure, then you can let it be the cure and start making changes accordingly. Well, Benjamin, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about the book and your work? Yeah, thanks so much, Brett. The book is available anywhere books are sold. Again, the title is Why We Get Sick. And notice, I didn't say you know, in the title Why Insulin Resistance Matters uh, for the very reasons we've spent an hour elaborating on is because most people don't know the value of insulin. And so they wouldn't have never, they'd never pulled it off the shelf. So yeah, anyway, go buy the book why we get sick. And I, I'm moderately active on social media, mostly Instagram, where I usually put out a few videos a week just about insight into human metabolism. And then one shameless plug, I have a little business with a couple of my brothers, a little family business where we make um, low-carb meal replacement shakes. And people can learn more about that on, by going to the website gethealth.com. And health, health is spelled H-L-T-H, gethealth.com. Fantastic. Well, Benjamin Bickman, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Brett. My guest today was Dr. Benjamin Bickman. He's the author of the book, Why We Get Sick. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his research and work at his website, bickmanlab.byu.edu. And if you want to learn more about his supplement health code, you can go to Get Health. That's health, just H-L-T-H. Check it out if you want to learn more information about that. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash sick, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our Art of Manless website at artofmanless.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or a family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding you to listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action.